This podcast addresses investigation of a citizen above suspicion, Elio Petri's savagely satirical political thriller from 1970. An original screenplay written by Petri and Ugo Pirlo, it tells the deeply disturbing story of a nameless inspector in the Italian police force who heads up an investigation into a murder he himself has committed. I can't be too certain, but I would not be surprised to learn that American author David Baldacci had at some point seen Petri's film and taken it as a cue for his best-selling novel, which William Goldman adapted into a film for Clint Eastwood, to direct in 1997. There, a jewel thief, Luther Whitney, played by Eastwood, secretly witnesses an old man having a drunken encounter with a younger woman. The old man becomes sexually violent, slapping the woman about her face and wrenching her hair. She defends herself by stabbing him in the arm with a letter opener, and as he cries out, two men burst into the room and shoot the woman dead. It turns out that the old man is the embodiment of absolute power. This thing is getting worse, Gloria. I need to see a doctor. The country would have to be informed, Mr. President. What happened to my rights to privacy? I think she nicked a tendon. The aim of this podcast is to locate investigation of a citizen above suspicion within Italy's political climate of the late 1960s. The ensuing 1970s political cinema before asking Just what is it in human nature that leaves us so blind to the true character and thus so in awe of those in power? Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Why do we refer to certain phases in history by way of euphemism? Consider, for instance, the Jazz Age. That takes in the era marked by an unprecedented economic boom, prohibition and the subsequent rise of the Mafia. And yet, the era is summed up by citing the one true American art form, jazz, a music created by African Americans who were subject to institutionalized discrimination and abuse, sanctioned by state legislatures. Lest we forget, the 1920s was a decade when the Ku Klux Klan had a membership of close to 4 million, while its outlying sympathizers made it the third largest political party in the United States. Why do we sometimes use language not to define something, but to disguise its essence? For example, in Northern Ireland from the late 1960s through to the late 90s, there came an explosion of ethno-nationalist paramilitary violence that resulted in the murder of over 3,500 people and injured close to another 50,000. While the fighting was going on, and to this day, those years were innocuously referred to as the troubles. Three coffins had arrived in Milltown Cemetery after a peaceful procession. They were to be buried in the same plot. Halfway through the graveside ceremony, the second coffin was lowered. After tributes to 23-year-old Sean Savage, his family looked on. The silence was shattered. As appeals went out for thousands of people packing the cemetery to stay down and calm down, more grenades were thrown. However, things get a bit more direct when we talk of Italy from the late 60s through to the early 80s. Those years were marked by political terrorism carried out by both the right and left wings, when fascist and communist factions assassinated political leaders, judicial appointees and police commissioners, trade unionists, journalists and industrialists, college professors, school teachers and diplomats, and planted bombs that slaughtered innocent civilians. Those years are now sardonically referred to as Anni di Piombo, 
years of lead. In Rome, troops and police cause massive traffic jams in their search for Aldo Moro, the former prime minister kidnapped by extreme leftist guerrillas on March the 16th as part of their campaign to bring revolution to Italy. Spine-chilling efficiency was the hallmark of the gang that seized Moro. After forcing his car to stop, they killed his five police bodyguards with a hail of submachine gun fire before the guards had time to even draw their guns. The phrase originated not in Italy, but in Germany. In 1981, film director Margareta von Trotta made Die Bleien at Sight, which translates as The Leaden Times. Released in English-speaking territories as Mariana and Giuliana, Die Bleien at Sight, which went on to win the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, did not focus on Italy's terrorist organisations. Instead, von Trotter was inspired by the true story of German sisters Christiana and Gudrun Enslin. Gudrun Enslin was a prominent member of the Bader Meinhof Group, also known as the Red Army Faction, a Maoist Marxist terrorist organisation intent on overthrowing West Germany's democratically elected government, a government the Red Army Faction claimed was fascist. Enslin was captured in 1972, tried and imprisoned for her crimes of five firebomb attacks that resulted in the deaths of four civilians. But her death by suicide in 1977, while in prison, has long been claimed by her supporters as state murder. Here is von Trotta in interview at the Reykjavik International Film Festival in 2015. I went to the funeral and at the funeral was also the, the sister of Gudrun Enslin and she was totally broken and so she, she told me everything about her fight with her sister because she was also a leftist, let's say, and but she was uh, uh, willing to transform the German society step by step and, and her, her sister, Gudrun Enslin, she was <coughs> the one who was too impatient for that and she went then with, with a terroristic group. Von Trotter was just one of many European filmmakers who were addressing the political crisis unfolding across the continent. 1969 saw Costa Gavras's Oscar-winning Zed, which thinly fictionalised the real-life assassination at the hands of right-wing zealots of Greek democratic leader Grigoris Lambrakis. It was followed the next year by Bernardo Bertolucci's masterful adaptation of Alberto Moravia's The Conformist, which examined Italy under Mussolini's fascist regime. Released on January 29, 1970, it was followed a mere 11 days later by Petri's film. In 1972, Francesco Rosi's The Matte Affair recounted the true story of Enrico Matte, a highly successful industrialist whose death in a plane crash in 1962 has long been suspected as the work of the Mafia. In researching the film, Rosi's colleague Mauro Di Mauro, a journalist who was investigating the crash, vanished. His remains have never been found, and Rosi included his own search for him into the film, a subgenre Rosi categorised as Cine Inchiesti, film investigation. Premiering at the Cannes Film Festival, the Mate Affair was awarded the Palme d'Or. Three years later, von Trotta and her then-husband Volker Schlondorf adapted Heinrich Bull's controversial novel The Lost Honour of Katharina Blum. It detailed how a young woman's life is slowly and systematically destroyed by the police, media and public opinion following her having met a young man who was suspected by the authorities of being a political activist. And finally in Spain in 1979, Juan Antonio Bardem 
directed Seven Days in January, which reconstructed the massacre of Atocha, an attack by right-wing extremists during the country's transition to democracy after the death of General Franco in 1975. Despite their critical acclaim, all these films divided audiences down the centre, with the right calling them seditionist, while the left complained that they were not rebellious enough. And in Petri's case, his film drew the wrath of the Italian police, because Petri had dared to show them abusing their powers. In fact, so sceptical was Petri of all power, he ends the film with a quote from Franz Kafka's The Trial. Whatever he may seem to us, he is yet a servant of the law. That is, he belongs to the law, and as such, is set beyond human judgment. In Kafka's novel, the police never bother to explain to Joseph K just what crime he is supposed to have committed. Conversely, the protagonist in Petri's film is never charged because he is a police inspector newly promoted to a rank that places him above suspicion. But Petri further inverts Kafka's scenario by never assigning any name to his protagonist. In that way, the police inspector comes to stand for all the faceless bureaucracies that not only clog access to the judicial process, but also obscure the truth from the public. Petri opens his film with the inspector, played by Gian Maria Volante, most famous for his roles in the first two of Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy, visiting his mistress at her opulent apartment in the centre of Rome. Augusto Terzi, played by Florinda Balkan, greets him with the words How are you going to kill me this time? I'm going to slash your throat. This is part of their ongoing erotic game. Only on this occasion, while in the throes of passion, the inspector does take a razor and cuts Augusta's throat. As she lies bleeding to death on the black satin sheets, he takes a shower, takes a nap, and then takes the time to studiously position several pieces of self-incriminating evidence. As he leaves the apartment, he is spotted by a neighbour, but he is unperturbed and instead goes to a public payphone where he informs the authorities a murder has just been committed. Between the time the production ended and the film was released, there occurred an event in Italy that strongly coloured the film's critical reception. Here is David Forgash of New York University at a public screening of Petri's film in April 2014. So a series of events took place in Italy that made both uh, NATO and uh, the US Department of State and other people watching Italy very nervous. A bomb went off in a bank in uh, Piazza Fontana in Milan on December 12, 1969. So there's no way that that event influenced the film. But the film was released in January 1970, and immediately people who saw it connected it with the police investigation that followed it. Petri and Piero's screenplay springs from a very intriguing premise, in that it questions the theory Freud set out in Civilization and its discontents. There he argued that once an individual becomes aware he or she is doing something wrong, they deliberately make mistakes in covering up their crime, because, Freud argued, we all harbour an unconscious need to be punished. He called it our moral masochism. But while Petri does present, albeit in a dream sequence, the police inspector's sense of guilt, the real masochism lies with his subordinates, who inflict upon themselves, and thus society at large, a state of repression where they fail to implement any semblance of moral law. In this way, Petri's film isn't really about people who abuse power, but rather those of us who stand in awe of those in power.
Shortly before Petri released his film, he screened it to a number of his peers, specifically Cesare Sabatini, Mario Monicelli and Ettore Scola. The response was very positive, but also guarded. You're going to end up in prison, they said. Petri did not go to prison. On the contrary, the Italian government publicly endorsed it by choosing it as the country's official submission as Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. The nominations for Best Foreign Language Film are Hoabine, France. Paix sur le champ, Belgium. Tristana, Spain. Investigation of a citizen above suspicion, Italy. First Love, Switzerland. And the winner is... Uh, Italy for Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion is not a subtle film. Instead, Petri opted for a polemic in which the police inspector repeatedly goes on prolonged rants, where he rails against not only what he perceives as society's perversions, but also his own staff, berating them for either finding the incriminating clues or failing to gather the evidence. Despite the strong promise of its inciting incident, Petri blunts his thesis by repetition. It results in a justifiably angry film, but one which lacks the psychological dimension and cinematic articulation of, say, Bertolucci's The Conformist. Besides Augusta Terzi, there really is no other character who is granted any emotional variance. On the plus side, however, the wardrobe given to the police inspector by costume designer Angela Samachiccia is effective. In the police station, he often hurries through the corridors, wearing a severe dark suit, white shirt and black tie. While outside in the streets, he strolls about in a khaki suit, purple silk tie and fashionable sunglasses. As for the cinematography, Luigi Quivella's camera is always on the move, constantly prowling the police station as if struggling to keep track of the inspector's unbridled id, map the confusion of his staff and chart the anxiety of his prisoners. And then there is Ennio Morricone's score. By turns, ominous and comical, it cleverly uses a guido that, depending on the scene and tone, suggests either cogs in a machine, as if this were the wheels of justice, or the sound of a torturer stretching a victim on the rack. Besides Hollywood thrillers such as The Conversation and Syriana, and factually based films such as JFK and The Post, history and literature have given us plenty of ruminations on power and the abuses that all too often come with it. From the judgments of Solomon and Pontius Pilate to Dante's Inferno, Shakespeare's Macbeth, George Orwell's Animal Farm, Ellie Wiesel's Night and Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, not to mention painters and artists as desperate as Picasso and Norman Rockwell, as well as the likes of Barbara Kruger, The Gorilla Girls, Banksy, and Ai Weiwei. However, there really should be no need to look to art for all that. The evidence is right there in everyday life for all of us to see. Only all too often we choose to look the other way. From the sexual misconduct or crimes of Silvio Berlusconi, Clarence Thomas, Father Sean Fortune, Jimmy Savile, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nassar, to the fiscal malfeasance of Kenneth Lay, Scott Sullivan, Bernie Madoff, Tycho, Refco, Libor and Bear Stearns, to the military massacres in My Lai, the Sinjar district in Iraq and Anwar Dapura in Sri Lanka, 
to the human rights abuses of Mohamed Sahartu, Slobodan Milosevic, Aung San Suu Kyi, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin and Rodrigo Duterte. Just what is it in human nature that leaves us so blind to the true character, and thus so in awe, of those in power? The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. <laughs>